The way that I see it myself is that science is the art of telling a story. It's a narrative in the same way that any other kind of book is a story, um, be it fictional or even non-fictional in some cases. Hello everyone, welcome to Lively Lead by Chat Radio, a weekly literature podcast airing every Sunday. I'm Ha Chang, and today I'm talking with a guest rather than my co-host Kim. As you might have known from the second episode featuring Kim and Alina Martin, in season 2 of Lively Lit by Chat Radio, Kim and I will take turn to talk to a guest every other week. So our guest for today is Rob Jones, a PhD candidate in theoretical physics at King's College London. So hi Rob, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Uh, yeah, so thank you very much for hosting me. It's really quite a pleasure to be had on this podcast as well. So as has just been said, my name is Rob Jones. So I am in the field of theoretical and computational condensed matter physics, or more broadly speaking, theoretical physics at King's College London. And so my research itself is mostly focused around uh, the computational design and uh, simulation of little metallic nanoparticles, which I'm going to be engineering for the purposes of uh, photon-enhanced catalysis. Um, but when I'm not studying, when I'm not writing computer code, and when I'm not solving equations, I'm often found either reading various books, I do my own writing, and I'm often out on my unicycle as well, getting a little bit of fresh air in. So that's the kind of person I am, I suppose. Well, that is a very interesting profile. So tell me, what has a scientist to do with literature? So that's actually a really beautiful question. And the way that I see it myself is that science is the art of telling a story. It's a narrative in the same way that any other kind of book is a story, um, be it fictional or even non-fictional in some cases. Because when you are conducting science, at least this is my interpretation of it, you're looking at something which is happening in the world around you. So for me in particular, it's in the physical world, being a physicist. I make an observation and I ask myself, hmm, what might be causing this to happen? And so I then write a story, I create a hypothesis, if you will, and I say, this is what I think is happening. And then I can, in a sense, read the next few pages ahead in this story, which I've tried to create for myself, so I can then test my hypothesis if the story I've written is compatible with the story that the universe is continuing to say to me, then I can say, okay, I've told a good story. If not, then I can say, okay, maybe I need to work on my characters. Maybe the plot works a little bit differently. So in terms of literature and science, I really do think that there's this overlap between the construction of a compelling narrative and actually seeing the beauty and the art in the aesthetic form of the construction of the world around us in very much the same way that you can have the beauty and the art and the aesthetic form in a piece of written literature. Okay, so based on what you've just said, I think that science very much resembles detective stories because you have to find everything in order for them to make sense with one another, to present a very cohesive argument, cohesive story about, say, a murder. Am I correct? That's actually a very good way of interpreting it. Yes, so you are indeed playing a little detective story. And 
More often than not, your detective story has these elements of things being quite hidden to you or things being obscured by other factors and you have to work very hard to make sure that these other factors which are at play aren't um, obscuring the broader picture. So you really have to be able to, to dust away everything else in order to see what is really at the bottom there, much like a, a good detective would be. Because there's always going to be so much noise that the world is going to be throwing in and around you, at you. And there's always going to be so many different things that could be affecting what you're seeing. And in order to actually make a deduction in the detective way as to what's happening, then you need to have a way of isolating that one thing which you're looking for. You need to have a way of isolating that one suspect in your detective story away from all of the other influences that they're subject to. All right, so what are you going to bring to us today in terms of the reading that we're expecting to hear? Okay, so I have been actually reading this wonderful biography. As, as I understand it, you've not yet had a biography discussed um, on your podcast, is that correct? Yes, this is a brand new genre that is being introduced to Lively Lit by Chat Radio. Amazing. Uh, so yes, this is uh, written by a theoretical physicist by the name of Graham Farmello, and he is discussing a figure who is certainly within the physics community very well known, and arguably in the broader community, his name may have some level of resonance. And so the biography is titled The Strangest Man, and it's essentially about the life and the works of the uh, British physicist Paul Dirac. And the reason I've actually selected this particular book is because it really does detail the story of how we came to some very fundamental observations and understandings about the world around us based purely on this kind of deductive reasoning. Great. So how about you read your excerpt for us? Okay, perfect. So, in fact, this is from the prologue. There's a passage which I think really sets the stage for this. And so if I may read it out. Yet Dirac's eyes glazed over during talk of the practical and philosophical consequences of quantum physics. He was concerned only with the search for the fundamental laws that describe the longest strands in the universe, its fabric. And he was convinced that these laws must be mathematically beautiful. And he once, uncharacteristically, hazarded the unverifiable conjecture that God must be a mathematician of the highest order. And so I think that this excerpt from the prologue here really does give us a sense of what our detective here, if we're going to be using that kind of metaphor going forward, what he is trying to do is he is trying to pull apart the filaments of the universe so that he may see how it's put together. And his assertion and his conjecture is that God must be a mathematician because this is how he views the universe as being put together. This leads him on the, on the road to discovery as to how to find some things which are very fundamental in nature as well. Yeah, that's a very beautifully written um, paragraph. But I think what's of interest to me in this one is that he says God is the mathematician of a very high order. Do you think science and religions are similar in any way? So, we actually have from this book as well the quote, Sir Ernest Rutherford, 
who in fact is another very famous physicist and may be more of a household name than Dirac himself, but Sir Ernest Rutherford deplored the writing of popular books by men who had been serious scientists to satisfy the craving for the mysterious exhibited by the public. This was a common opinion in Cambridge. A few months later, his idolizer, C.P. Snow, a scientist about to become a writer, sneered at science popularizers for doing a job that was just too easy. There was no argument and no appeal, just worshipper and worshipped. The result was, Snow declared, a great evil. So going back to the question of, is there a relationship between science and religion in this respect? And I was making the argument that they are becoming blurred. I think that that quote there does actually identify what is going on or at least it identifies an emerging problem back in the 1930s that we do see a lot of now as well, in the concept of because of the way that science is pre-digested for the public, it can very much have these airs of mysticism about it, in which the language of science itself doesn't help itself in any respect, as all too often we'll be using words to the effect of uncertainties or theory or hypothesis, all of which have these airs of lacking confidence, at least in the kind of public common parlance and lexicon. And so that we may actually communicate meaningfully that no, we are very confident in what we're claiming here, but rather we're just wanting to be consistent with the language. Instead, science pundits will instead choose to peddle a discovery, will instead choose to peddle a finding as being truth. And I may get some flack from other members in the scientific community for saying this, but I genuinely do hold it to be consistent that we do not deal with truths, at least not in science itself, potentially in mathematics, but in science itself, you don't handle, you don't deal in truths. You deal in constructing the most reasonable narrative given the information you have. However, this isn't a very compelling argument to sell to the public if you're trying to convince them of a finding. Because, ultimately speaking, in your DVD player, for instance, if people still have a DVD player, that is, as it is quite old technology, I realise now, um, but nonetheless, in your DVD player is a laser device which does require an understanding, to create it at the very least, of um, optics and of physical properties relating to optics and quantum mechanics. So, we can't say for certain to an absolute degree of truth that these stories we've told are the truth. However, we can say they are sufficiently true and they create a sufficiently good description of the world such that we can create this technology that allows your DVD player to work. So in that respect, I believe that we are blurring the line between science and religion because of the way in which we try to actually sell it and publicize it because we're afraid of how the language itself communicates our own inherent uncertainties in our stories. Yeah, so you talked a little bit about truth in science and you say that scientists can never be sure of an absolute truth. And I think this is what differentiates science from religion because in religion, in many religions actually, um, there is an absolute truth and people who 
believe in that religion strive to attain that absolute truth, which in some cases is salvation. I think that's a very reasonable kind of observation to make in that respect. Uh, not being a theologist myself, then I can't exactly, um, I can't claim t- as to what the ultimate nature or ultimate objective of religion as an entity is. Although I think that probably does come somewhat close to it. At least that would be my understanding of it, that as you say, you'd be wanting to say that there is something which is objectively true in this world, in this universe, in this nature, in this however you want to define the environment you're in. And either it can be accessed by the every person if you practice and live your life in such a way, or alternatively, that there may be some being who has access to this ultimate, objective, undeniable truth. Whereas on the other side of things, the process of scientific discovery itself is simply, as I said at the beginning of our discussion, it is the process by which you can make an observation and then you try to account for that observation in the most simplistic way that doesn't leave anything out missing. And objectively speaking, this is only ever going to be a story because you're going to be, you're going to naturally be omitting some other elements of the story at play there because they either don't play a sufficient amount of a part in that story or alternatively because to account for them is just too much effort for what they contribute. Yeah, so basically in science, you can never be sure of any observations. So my question would be, how about bias? Because you say that it starts from an observation and it, you know, you collect evidence in order to prove that your hypothesis might be right. How do you deal with biases in scientific discovery? That is an excellent question. So bias can come in in so many different ways. And I suppose it also depends on what our own understanding of what bias means will also contribute. If I could just go back to an earlier thing you said just in that statement. So you said that you can never be sure of an observation. Okay, in the sense of you can't guarantee that what you have observed is indeed exactly what has happened. That is true to an extent. But again, what you will do is you can attach you can attach uncertainties to your measurement. So say, for instance, you want to know how, um, how wide your door was. You'd bring out a measuring tape, you would hold it up against the door, and you would say, okay, it's 70 centimeters. And you can say this because your, um, your tape measure only deals in increments of a single centimeter. So you say to the nearest increment. However, the door is probably not exactly 70 centimeters. So rather you can say that it's somewhere between 69 and a half and 70.5. You still know that your door is essentially 70 centimeters, but you then have this uncertainty attached to that observation and to that measurement. So you rather have this interval of confidence in your observation. So in terms of my own research, then I am definitely biased in the sense that I'd like to think that my ideas are good ideas that what I'm looking for is going to either verify or falsify my idea. And so it's quite likely that I may unknowingly try to see trends in my data that may not otherwise be there. So that itself is going to be a bias that I bring in because no matter how much I try to depersonalize it, I still am going to be a person who has a vested interest in the quality of my research. 
And there's many things that you can do to try to combat these biases. So in the example I've given for you now, I will often, if I can't say with confidence, but rather I think that I'm wanting to see something, I can discuss with either my supervisor or with a colleague who may be more experienced than myself or may be more familiar with these things, and I can ask them for a second opinion without saying to them, this is what I'm seeing, but rather just present to them and say, what do you see here? So that could be a way that I could handle this. And so this is through collaboration. This is through the shared understanding and knowledge that other people have based on their own experiences. And in principle, you could do this with a broader and broader community. And you'll have all of these little metadata points, if you will, that will circle around some kind of given more accurate description of the observation because somebody is likely to be inserting their own biases into the data that they're seeing just as much as another person will be doing so themselves. We all want to think that what we understand best is what we're seeing and so if you ask many different people then you can kind of nullify that bias in a meaningful way. Another way that I'd like to talk about biases is through another excerpt from the book that I'm discussing as well today. And so it relates to another great mind from the scientific community that is definitely a household name that I can be confident that near enough everyone alive today will be familiar with. And so the quote goes, The youngest star of the first conference in 1911 had been Albert Einstein, then emerging from obscurity and quick to point out the prejudices of older, more conservative minds. In 1927, Einstein was the uncrowned king of physics and entering middle age, still a popular and unassuming figure, but showing signs of crustiness and disillusion. He was ploughing his own furrow, seeking a unified theory of gravity and electromagnetism, without assuming that quantum mechanics was correct. Now it was Einstein who seemed inflexible and backward-looking. And so indeed, this does relate back to the kind of bias that I was discussing before, that we want our ideas to be the ones that are the most reliable, that are the most accurate, that are the most close to something resembling truth. And indeed, even people who are as renowned as influential scientists as Einstein himself, he wasn't immune to this, as is seen, that he was very suspicious of an emerging theory that was proving itself to be not only very elegant in a mathematical form, but also extraordinarily accurate at making predictions. And so it goes to show that regardless of who you are in a scientific community, you will be carrying these biases with you, and it's quite likely that you may be somewhat blinded by these two. So that is the very beautiful example to show that even the supposedly greatest mind of science can be susceptible to biases. And I think it kind of reminds me of a very funny scene in Friends. I don't know if you've watched it. But um, in one episode, Phoebe told Rods that, you know, I don't quite believe in evolution theory. And Rod was like desperately trying to prove that the theory by Darwin is actually true. And then Phoebe was like, why are you so arrogant that you can't accept there's a tiny, teeny possibility that all of this is wrong? 
So how would you react if many years of research that you've done to prove something and somebody says that, well, I don't buy it? Well, of course, I'd be very upset if this were to happen to me. But on the other hand, if I were to dispense with the personalizing of it, then in principle, what you're being presented with is you're being presented with the challenge of how are you going to sell this idea to me? Because that's, just, that's, in, that's in principle what somebody is saying to you. If you're not buying it, then that means that you aren't selling it in a way that's convincing to them. And in some respects, maybe it's an idea that they will never buy for one reason or another, just as there are products in a consumer market that I would never buy as well for one reason or another. And a question you could ask is, how important is it that this individual themselves isn't convinced by the story that I'm telling? Depending on the individual, it may be very important. So if I was wanting to have one of my ideas published in a journal and a reviewer was saying to me, no, this idea is complete nonsense. I, I don't think that you have a good idea here. Then that's going to be very troubling for me. And there'd be a very heavy onus on me as well to create a more compelling story. So potentially what I'd need to do is collect more data. I would need to create more evidence, not create more evidence, sorry. I'd need to collect more evidence and conduct more experiments, which the experiment wouldn't be to verify my idea, but rather I'd be wanting to conduct experiments that could falsify it because I wouldn't be able to tell you off the top of my head who said this, but a wonderful quote, which I recall from when I first started studying physics some years ago now, was something to the effect of, when you're wanting to test a theory, launch it against a brick wall as fast as you can and then pick up the pieces. If the pieces are of the theory, you need a new one. If the pieces are of the wall, get a stronger wall. And so the idea in that being, keep trying to break it, keep trying to show that there is something wrong with it. And if you can't show that there's something wrong with it, then ultimately speaking, people will have fewer and fewer reasons to object. There also from that quote that you were expressing there to me as well, there was the element of Phoebe saying to Ross, is there not a single chance in your mind that this can't be right or worse to that effect in any case? And I would like to think that Ross, if he, as a scientist himself, granted he's a character in a fictional show, but Ross as a scientist himself should in principle have that built into him already that what he's espousing is simply the best model that he has at the time. And so to bring it back to my own domain here as well in physics, from Newtonian laws of mechanics, we have this whole notion that masses attract and the force of attraction between them falls off as the square of the separating distance. This is essentially Newtonian gravity. And then a hundred years ago, Einstein comes in and he says, okay, that's not quite right. It's not masses that attract in this sense, but rather just putting energy into an environment creates a disturbance in this broader scheme of this combined space-time and this distortion is what leads masses to actually come together because they're all just following what are called geodesics which is just the fastest way to travel in an environment so what we have there is we're just saying okay we update the story as and when we get more information in the same way that ross is going to be saying okay 
or rather Ross should be saying, okay, this is the most convincing story we have at the moment to describe the ideas. I have never once claimed to anyone that the work that I do is a reflection of truth. It's just, it's just a nice picture. It's just a nice drawing of the world around me that I can do. So for instance, when, I don't know if you like drawing, do you? Um, not really. Okay, but I mean, you've either seen people doing sketches on, say, the train or in a nice environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So let's say that you see one of these people, they're in a park and they're creating a beautiful sketch of what they can see. Maybe it's the skyline of the city, maybe it's a very nice tree, whatever. You would look at the sketch and you say, this is a representation of the tree. That's not the tree itself, you, because otherwise you, they would have the tree with them. This is what, again, we're doing. We're creating the story. We're creating something you can put into your pocket that is sufficiently representative of what you can see. Yeah, that's a very interesting example that leads to what I want to talk now is the relationship between science and art. Because um, in the excerpt that you just read, there is some simile or parallel between like science and art and um, description of how Dirac himself wants to create like the most beautiful equation ever. Am I right? Something to that effect, yes. So it's more a case of Dirac himself would often say the most important thing for a physical theory is that it is mathematically beautiful. So what is mathematically beautiful? Is there any like clear definition of what is beautiful in math? Because I mean, for me personally, as a humanities student, I never find mathematical equations beautiful. That's an excellent question. And the thing is, I reckon that you would get a very different answer depending on who you asked. Even if you were to go around the same phys theoretical physics department or around the same mathematics department and ask members of that community, you'd get a very subjective answer which in that respect is probably quite consistent with the idea of relating science to art itself. That You will have these very subjective ideas that would rather be circulating around something which is maybe uh, close to the original intention. So in my mind, the idea of mathematical beauty is something which is completely irreducible, that by changing even a single thing about it, then you lose all of its power, you lose all of its potency, you lose everything that it can do or have, and that it is the most condensed, boiled down form that something could be, that, that's almost like a little loaded box that as soon as you start to unload it, all of these wonderful, wondrous things pop out of it. Um, so there's many equations which are considered to be mathematically beautiful. I think that what is generally being considered to be the most beautiful one is what's called Euler's identity, named after the um, polymath Leonard Euler. What this basically says is that you have this really amazing link between some very fundamental numbers in mathematics. So the expression itself says that the number E raised to the power of the complex unit I times by pi is equal to negative 1. And this has so much in it that you can unpack. It basically introduces to you not only what a complex number is, but also how you can then use them functionally. And you have these two really big heavy hitters of, um, of pure mathematics as well, the number E, 
being related to things like exponential growth, population growth, and um, a whole host of other things as well. That, given this is a literature podcast, I won't go into too much detail on, but it is really a fabulous number. And you have this number pi as well, which relates to circles and uh, relating radii to diameters. And then you also have in this as well, the unit, in, the unit itself, the one. You're just combining all of these beautiful, heavy hitting numbers into one single expression that teaches you something very fundamental about a whole new plane of mathematics. And that itself is something that I find very beautiful. And with what Dirac did as well, with his beauty that he expressed, he was able to bring together two ideas that were seen at the time to be very incompatible because of not necessarily inconsistencies, but just huge hurdles to overcome to actually get them to communicate with one another. The ideas of Einstein's special relativity and the burgeoning field of quantum mechanics itself. And he managed to bring these two things together in such a small, compact form that if you ignore the brackets itself is only i think four characters long and yet it describes every electron in the universe simultaneously and that is just an amazing thing in my mind okay so talking about the relationship between art and science do you think that scientific discovery comes much from within the scientists say like coming from intuition rather than coming from you know elements outside because there has been a story a very popular story indeed i'm not sure if it's true that mendeleev the one who discovered the periodic table he discovered it um one day after waking up from a dream i think the reality is that there that you have to have a good symphony of both operating harmoniously so to take another quote from this book as well in those politically tranquil times the favorite topic of conversation in cambridge was poetry the eight to five year old poet laureate robert bridges had written the most talked about poem of the year a testament to beauty five thousand six hundred lines about the nature of beauty it is now read only rarely but then it struck a chord with tens of thousands of lay readers and some literary critics, including one in the Cambridge Review, who described it as a high philosophical explanation of Keats's beauty is truth, truth, beauty. To some extent, Bridges was reacting against modernist art, such as Schoenberg's atonal music, Picasso's cubism, Eliot's fragmented poetry. Bridges sought beauty and found it not only in music, art and nature, but also in science, food, and even in football matches. Dirac knew too that beauty was about much more than art and nature. He had seen it in Einstein's equation for the general theory of relativity, and now he had an equation of his own that was no less of a contribution to aesthetics. But aesthetic judgments like that count for nothing in science if a theory fails to agree with experiments. And so what we can infer from this at least in the perspective of Graham Farmello himself as the biographer, is his opinion is that you still have to have this ability for your theory, for your equation, to reconcile with nature when you make an observation. That is still the very much fundamental test. But that doesn't mean 
that you can't have some level of intuition as well when you are coming to learn something about the universe. So indeed, you mentioned Mendeleev, if memory serves. And so he did his observations on elements. He did his observations on patterns within these elements. And from this, he was then able to use his intuition as a creative person. He was able to channel the artist that lives within every single human. At least that's how I personally interpret it. He was able to channel that creativity to predict that which hadn't been observed before, that you can use this power of intuition, which is supported and corroborated by the patterns that you're able to observe throughout scientific discovery itself. And indeed, Dirac himself also followed very much a similar kind of process when he was developing his equation. All right. Thank you so much for your answer. So I think our airing time is coming to an end. Any final words to our audience? Um, so obviously, I'd like to thank you as well for hosting me one more time, as it has really been a genuine joy to be had on this podcast and to share with you not only my own interests, but also to share with you the beauty that is in the discovery of the laws of nature themselves and in observing the world because it really is a beautiful world around us and i suppose one of the parting things i would like to leave people with is the notion that to be a scientist it's not just about being very studious and mathematical these are obviously skills that you have to develop however it's also just as important to be creative to be free thinking to be artistic and more importantly to tell a, a convincing story in a way that people will want to listen to your story so in the way of ross to rachel you have to sell a story that somebody wants to buy you have to present a story and a book that somebody will want to pick up time and time again otherwise you may as well not tell the story at all Is actually Ross and Phoebe. My apologies. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm going to get a lot of flack for that, aren't I? Not knowing the characters. No, 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 no. You're good. You're good. But yeah, thank you so much for that remark because I believe that will inspire a lot of young people to pursue science because normally people will believe that science and art are two distinctive disciplines and, you know, they have no overlap whatsoever. I couldn't disagree more with, with that kind of idea. I genuinely think that you have to be creative. I genuinely think that you have to have a mind and a view for a beautiful story. And you have to have a mind for beauty itself so that you can approach science. It's much easier in my mind to teach mathematics than it is to teach creativity. And so if you want to see wonder in the universe, if you want to see wonder in the world around you, do so. The mathematics can be taught later. It can be taught at another time. But the beauty that you can perceive is something that you yourself can only really possess for yourself. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for discussing with us. And we absolutely hope to be able to host you again another time on this podcast. Thank you very much. I'd be very much happy to come back on again. To our listeners, thank you for listening. And please look forward to our episode next week.